0: Ahoy! This is Mike Lee, the mayor of Amsterdam. I've been an engineer for a long time, but recently I've noticed something strange. Even though I keep getting better at my job, it keeps getting harder to find work. I started asking around, and it turns out, it's not just me. I'm going to be talking to Jennifer about ageism in the technology industry and the differences between the American and European experience on her podcast, Tiny Little Victories.
1: Okay. You know it's coming. Hey, friends. Welcome back to Tiny Little Victories. I'm your host, Jennifer Kite Powell, and I'm so excited that you're here with us because this is the third to the last episode of season two. How about that? Season two. Yeah, I love my sound effects. I don't know why I haven't used them more anyway. We are going to be closing out season two, but we have three more episodes today's episode, and then which I'm going to talk about a little bit later. And then the second to the last episode is with Dr. Brittany Lamb. And Dr. Lamb is an ER room doctor in Virginia, but through her experiences there and treating her own burnout, she began to create a network for dementia caregivers. And so it's really interesting of how she brought these two sides of her together. So she's going to talk a little bit about that. And the final episode is with Carl Forkel, who I call the Texas Denim King, all the way from Germany to Dallas, Texas. And he has such an interesting story. He actually went to school here at a military school in New Mexico when he was 15. And so he has a lot of really, really great stories about how he's always wanted to be a part of sort of this American manufacturing sort of design industry but he didn't really know what that looked like so he's got a great story to tell and he does make these very gorgeous bespoke jeans that we're going to talk a little bit about but before we do that i'm going to tell you something i think is really exciting we are taking a pause for summer but we're only taking a pause because we're creating the best of season two on tiny little victories and it's going to be like a graham norton style yeah yeah i know it's going to be awesome podcast where I have taken the top 10 episodes, highest ranking episodes of Tiny Little Victories, and I have put them all in a little blender and shuffled them all around. And then I've paired up each guest with another guest uh, that's going to be on the podcast. And then I'm going to be peppering them with questions that they have to answer on the spot. So hopefully it'll generate something funny, but also hopefully some conversation, that we can get our heads around. And um, so, yeah, so it's going to be, it's going to be funny. It's going to be fun. We're going to like pretend like they're on little chairs like Graham Norton does. Everybody has a cocktail in their hand. So that's what we're doing. And that series starts on July 12th. So you're going to have to come back for that. It's summertime fun. And in the fall, we're going to start up season three. We already have 10 amazing guests lined up for season three. First of all, we have a female mountain climber who has done some free climbing at some of the highest peaks uh, around the world. I think that is going to be really interesting to talk to her. We have someone from IMDb, who's going to give us the inside scoop. And we also have a pretty famous makeup artist from who does a lot of um, makeup and skincare for those Hollywood ladies. So I think we had a really nice mix of people that are going to be sharing their tiny little victories with us come fall. And we'll be ready for that in the fall, right? Yeah, we'll totally be ready. So anyway, sit back. All you got to do now is sit back, relax for this next episode called Lost in Translation with Mike Lee. everybody, and welcome back to Tiny Little Victories. I am your host, Jennifer Kite Powell, and today I have a co-host with me, Mark DeCock, who was on another episode, and a very special guest with us from Amsterdam. Yes, somebody else in Amsterdam, Mike Lee. Welcome to the show, guys. Hi. Hey, yeah. Great. Oh, hey, yeah. Now, we don't know who that is, so the person that said, hey, yeah, is Mark DeCock, who is actually a Dutchman, and the person said hi, is Mike Lee, who is an American living in the Netherlands. We're going to try this again. Are you ready? Mike, welcome to the show. Aloha. Aloha! I love that much child is waiting, because for everybody out there, when you usually greet Mike, he has a great, like, ahoy, or something fun, <laughs> something fun and carefree uh, to talk about. Now, um, I want to just give you a little send-up before we start going, but Mike Lee is, he is not I guess you're an engineer, you're an app developer, used to be the mayor of Amsterdam. You've got a lot going on. You live in the Netherlands, and um, I feel like you've got a lot to say about engineering. (laughs) Is that about right?
0: Yeah, that's pretty much my life, thinking about (laughs) engineering, teaching engineering.
1: And Mark is the founder of... um, Brand PWRD. What does that stand for, Mark? Because I don't like saying <laughs> it like that. Brand. Yeah,
2: it's it stuck with me. It's a brand-powered powered... media, but then in a fancy way.
1: <laughs> okay, brand-powered media, which is a digital brand agency. And the interesting thing about what was happening here, and Mark, you can maybe tell this story to lead into Mike, but Mark and I were talking from the last podcast, and then Mark thought, oh, I know this guy, Mike Lee, he's so interesting. And he's popped back up on my radar. But how did you two actually meet? Like, I guess I want to know how we all have come together.
2: (laughs) Well, Mike came up on the radar uh, years back when he came to Amsterdam. um, And he started working at a company called Sofa, uh, which was, uh, uh, I think, after four or five years was uh, sold to Facebook. Um, And uh, the founders, uh, Kuni Jorn, are are friends of mine. Um, You mean like sofa, uh, like you
1: sit on a sofa?
2: Yeah, but the company was called Sofa, yeah. Okay. Uh, And they they had a very nice sofa in the office, uh, which was sort of a
0: garage-type environment. Yeah.
1: Well, you would have to if your name is Sofa. You would really literally have to have Mm -hmm. a nice sofa in your office. And what did Sofa do?
0: Yeah, I mean, they were one of the best uh, Macintosh software companies in the world, frankly
1: wow i haven't heard the word macintosh in a long time it was a thing we old-timers
0: did before the iphone (laughs) (laughs) exactly macintosh
1: right it's like a word that's sort of like in the wayback machine so what you did you came to amsterdam mike because of sofa or how did you decide to like jump ship and come over because i did the same thing i jumped ship and went over
0: yeah, well it's a, it's a, it's a long interesting story. Like Tell us your story, stories. Mike. Yeah.
1: We want to know your story.
0: Well, you know, I I used to be uh one of these indie Mac developers. People don't necessarily remember, but before iPhone, you know, the Mac <laughs> had this period of just amazing software coming out, really groundbreaking software and it was really these, you know, small independent companies that were responsible for all of the, you know, innovation on on Apple's platforms. And unfortunately, iPhone kind of changed all that. And it used to be that the developer community was so small that kind of everybody in the developer community knew each other. And I got to know uh, uh, Dirk Stope, one of the other uh, co-founders of SOFA over these years, and uh, really came to respect him. I mean, he's still one of the smartest people I've I've ever met. He was a a CTO, right? Yeah, 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 Yeah. awesome guy. And uh, he, you know was like, oh, you should move to Amsterdam. You should work for us. And it was always kind of something that was in the back of my head. But I kind of had my own (laughs) thing going on. iPhone came out. I went to Silicon Valley, had a couple of startups. And then I eventually ended up at Apple. Um, Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I was at Apple when Steve Jobs got sick again, and I really had this kind of, uh, this crisis of knowing that the world was going to be a very different place uh, without Steve. And Mm -hmm. I realized that it wasn't enough for me to just, uh, you know, sit in my Silicon Valley office and three infinite loop (laughs) and, uh. You know, I I realized that I needed to really uh, get some international experience because everything at Apple is, you know, worldwide this and worldwide that. But in practice, it felt very California. So I wanted to get, yeah, I wanted to get as far from Silicon Valley as I could uh, share my knowledge with others and uh, gain some of that international experience. So I, I left the company. I did a year long world tour and uh, thought about all the places I could settle down and ultimately decided that moving to Amsterdam and and working with SOFA would be the way to go. Unfortunately, they were acquired by Facebook a month after I started.
1: What, one month after you started?
0: Yeah, they met met Zuck uh, a month after and uh, two months later they were all gone. But the initiative that we had started together, which was this idea, this Amsterdam, the idea was that I would sort of tempt all of my uh, all of my American network from being in the industry for so long to come over to Amsterdam and then tempt everybody else in the world to come to Amsterdam to learn from them. And in doing so, we would be <laughs> able to finally uh, jumpstart the, the Dutch tech scene. And it's kind of what happened. It's just that once Sofa left, we ended up continuing it as a community-led nonprofit, mm. and we've been doing it now for 12 years.
1: So it's still a community-led nonprofit. So what was that in 2007 then, 2008? Or where? what time frame were we talking about?
0: 2011.
1: It's very interesting that you talk about jump-starting the Dutch tech scene because I arrived there around 2007 and got sucked into the Dutch tech scene like pre-show part of the show. Right? Yeah. And everything, everything at that time was becoming app-oriented. And the Dutchies were... Like literally, as Mark had said on the podcast earlier, like when they would show up to an event or Mobile Monday or they would, people would be like, oh God, you guys, you're the phone guys, put your phones down. Because they were such early adopters of everything. And I, I think that's that tech community scene there to me was very much in a bubble, but there was so many brilliant minds like, like how to take a technology and shove it out into the world. And I think it's interesting that then you came in to sort of be a part of that Dutch tech scene, but then ended up probably doing something really meaningful is creating a sense of community um, through Amsterdam.
0: Yeah, I mean, the Dutch have always been very, uh, you know, technologically advanced. I mean, it goes all the way back to the mid 90s when I was still in high school to Mm -hmm. like Marlene Stecker at the the Wach Society, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, really bringing the Internet uh, at an early time. But uh, from everything I'd been told by the you know politicians and what I talked to, uh, they'd been trying for decades, but something was just sort of missing, and everybody said that. Well, I think it's the a funding issue. We don't have the funding yes, uh, of yes, Silicon Valley, yes. um, which I set out to prove uh, absolutely incorrect um and i you know i'm not the kind of person who goes around taking credit for starting tech scenes but the <laughs> university it, of amsterdam do just
1: do it just do the it, university do it. of amsterdam Somebody.
0: actually did a study um and found that the expansion of the tech scene uh correlated with the starting of the amsterdam foundation uh, one government administrator said it might be a coincidence but we don't think so <laughs> I that's love that. nice it is nice yeah. and also
1: i think like the fusion of the fusion of those things and I think this is a really interesting point to talk about is sort of the differences between uh, how Americans work or process or Dutch people or Europeans for that matter, because I think I noticed that right away there was a difference in you could jump as an American somewhere and you would encounter not resistance, but you would see, oh, there's a whole different like mindset around how people, different cultures approach problems. And this coinciding in 2011 around Amsterdam and the expansion of the Dutch tech scene probably is not surprising because sometimes it takes that little seed, you know, to be able to get that in the right people's minds that can take yeah. it from with it.
2: I think you're right there. Because what I remember from that time, and, and I want to sort of make sure I, I acknowledge that SOFA was not um, it was in a different league. It was a different level of, of performance and work, and they were quite close to themselves. I don't think they were, they were ever at the Mobile Monday, uh, for instance. Um, but um, uh, they were performing on a very high level with what they did and, and still do, by the way. They, they, the founders went on to start Framer, um, which was one, is one of the biggest f- funded uh, uh, startups and now scale-ups in, uh, in Holland. Um, but um, at that time, I think um, the Dutchies sort of uh, and and people involved in our in, in society uh, became aware of hey there there is more we can do in Texien. Um and they the the eyes were open that uh, it's not just limited to Silicon Valley um, and or any other area. Uh, we can start our own movement in that sense and uh, mm-hmm. uh, and hopefully get more get get a part of the same valuation that uh, big ideas got in in silicon valley mm-hmm. which is still a hard thing to do i think um, uh, to be seen in same league uh, uh, same valuation uh, f- from from early points of uh Starter scale up.
1: And like we're looking at, we're really talking about 12 years now. So from 2011 to say 2021, in that 10 year period, Mike, what do you think has changed the most in terms of what you're seeing in the tech community in the Netherlands um, or in Europe for that matter, based on your journey?
0: Well, I think it's like Mark was saying, uh, when I first arrived, you know, you really had everybody waiting for either the government or for certain large corporations to get the party started, so to speak. And I think that that comes from having a functional government with well-regulated industries, whereas Americans know better than to uh, wait for either the government <laughs> or corporations. And so we're sort of used <laughs> to doing things for ourselves. Yeah. And so we kind of, you know, we introduced this idea of. We, as the community, can do these things for each other. And so everything that people thought uh, was lacking from the scene, we started community-led initiatives to do those things. And then once people saw that they could be done that way, then other people started doing the same thing, sometimes, uh, you know, in copies of what we were doing or sometimes, uh, you know, their own version of things. And we were very generous with the information i i told the people to be like gardeners you know don't don't go out there and, and try to own everything <laughs> just go out there and, yeah. and try to make things better for everybody
2: i think it's not long later that that um some of the dutch startups also started going into y combinator uh, co- uh combinator uh, programs uh and uh, sort of Got, got bold um, and uh, and thought of uh, their idea is big enough to rule the world somehow. Um, and, uh, and Mike, I, I'm, I'm sort of, what do you remember of that time uh, where the, the movers that uh, are still doing stuff that's making impact?
0: Well so I think that one of the big things that happened and you know this is where you know it's this idea of you you start precipitating something and then it just kind of takes over itself the idea of just bringing people together in one place and introducing them to each other so that you know things I had nothing to do with anymore but like somebody who I invited would come over and then they would just meet people and so a bunch of for example Americans and Canadians moved over here and for a couple of years, uh, got, made a bunch of Dutch friends, a bunch, a ton of Dutch people uh, ended up going to the States to, to, to yeah. stay with those people. They made work connections that enabled them to get jobs at places like Apple and Facebook and Google and, and, and you know, inroads into Silicon Valley. And once those connections uh, started being formed, then they only became self-reinforcing as more people introduced more people and, and people kind of broke out of the Dutch bubble and became part of the larger world uh, tech scene.
2: Do you think there is sort of uh, um, something that the Dutchies saw in what you, for instance, as an American um, have learned to do or were sort of accustomed to do that they adapted uh, that, to that or, or did it work in a different way?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I think that as much as I love Dutch people and Dutch culture, uh, Dutch people are not really good at thinking outside the box. Um, you know, for example, try wearing uh, the color orange on a day other than King's Day. It just confuses people like they don't understand <laughs> that, you know, you can wear that color anytime you want. It's not for one specific day. And so I think that and I think this is is something that's generally true of certainly northern Europe. People are kind of afraid to be different and try different things and so mm, if they totally. see somebody else do it, then all of a sudden it's not so strange anymore. And I found that for the first few years, I would get invited to a lot of meetings just to shoot my mouth off so that they could all be <laughs> a little bit embarrassed and say, well, he's he's very rude. But the American makes a good point. And then that would allow them to say the things that they all wanted to say anyway. You That's know?
2: So Do I remember like... you being, a, being in a do I remember you uh, wearing a pirate's costume?
0: Yes, yes, I've been known for uh, for wearing my my costumes. I, I said with the to,
1: ahoy, with the ahoy pirate, that kind of goes hand in hand.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of part of it. And I, I, know, I just think, I think ahoy is is very cheerful and yeah, it is uh, very
1: cheerful. It is very cheerful, and I think also your point your point is really great. Like, it's sort of they need the thin end of the wedge to loosen them up, right? Like you said, Mike, that. Once you can go in and be that person that it does open the dams somewhat. It does dam, Amsterdam. <laughs>
0: God, God. <It's> <laughs> we try not to open the dams. It's for. Uh, <laughs> I know, bad try not forever, to open but. the dams.
1: <laughs> but but in this case it's good, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's good to let let at least the, the water flow a little differently sometimes.
1: How do you feel like that affected how people created or maybe, you know, influenced their work in some way? Did did those things come into play? Did you witness that?
0: Oh, yeah, I mean, I always say Americans are a little bit too intense, a little too crazy if you're pardon the <laughs> expression. And uh, Europeans in general and Dutch people certainly are a little bit too uh, they're a little bit too secure in their position. They're a little bit too calm. And so yeah. what I found was if you you know if you bring a European audience and and an American audience together, uh, over time, you see the Americans starting to calm down and realizing you don't actually have to work 20 hours a day. In fact, it's probably better <laughs> but, not to. And then yeah. you know, Dutch people see uh, it is actually possible to work past five o'clock sometimes. You know, <laughs> and so it's like you you see people kind of reaching this middle. And I've always said it's not that the Dutch yeah. system is the best way or the American system is the best way. Mm-hmm. I think the best way is somewhere between the two. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, That's I agree really with
2: profound. that. So, d- If you sort of, um, and I think you two qualify uh, very much uh, in that way, if you are are able to um, dive a bit deeper into a different culture for a longer period of time, let's say you live abroad or you live in a different country for a few years, you sort of get to see the mirror, right? you get yeah. to see what is it that you thought were uh is is reality in the way you do things and how uh, how culture accepts you in, in doing that uh, and all of a sudden you realize hey maybe that's not the right way to do things to to express yourself or to uh communicate with people or uh sort of accept uh, someone else uh, might be uh, smarter than you and then uh uh I remember a conversation with someone, and they, they asked me how How are you? Uh, how do you think I'm doing? And I, the only thing I could say is, well, if you don't know what you don't know, how can you say that you are good? Um, and I think that's sort of for <laughs> you. You you reference to Mike. Uh, the Dutch can be very confident. They can say things. You have to do this, where they actually should say it, you might consider this, and there there is an explain why. Uh, instead of making that bold statement and then also listen uh, to the other opinion and that it might be not the best solution.
1: Mm.
0: Yeah, I think both yeah. sides could afford to learn that lesson. Yeah, true. Yeah.
1: I really liked what you said about, you know, the differences between uh, and after a certain period of time, like the Americans calm down and the Dutch sort of ramp up. And it's really perfect example of the beauty and the value of getting different cultures together instead of staying so isolated, like you had said in your little box in Silicon Valley, because, you know, even, even for me in the line of work that I did when I was there, I, I did find myself calming down a little bit. um, But also absorbing some of that like cultural um, value. And I, I, you know, I worked in Sweden and Denmark and Finland so different again, like bringing in all this different energy really does Change how you work and how you relate to people. Even to this day, for me, even to this day, I do tend to prefer working with Europeans over Americans. If I could be candid, but because because you just become to think like them a little bit, so you understand them a little bit more.
0: That's definitely true, um, and I think that the more the more you learn and the more experience you get, the more you come to appreciate the sort of sometimes uh, sober way that Europeans will look at things versus the very. Uh, imaginative way Americans tend to look at things.
1: <laughs> <I think that's laughs> if you were
2: to to describe the way innovation works for you, Mike, uh, I used to think of, of uh, innovation in making steps, making bold choices, going, uh, 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 change things around in a big way. And then I lived in Switzerland for a while and I saw they made steps every sort of every month and every year and then, uh, always the same small steps but they went ahead as well and they really do innovate quite a big way. So if you look at your sort of years in in the US um and how uh things are going in in Europe could you reflect on that?
0: Yeah, I mean I think that that's really true. Um it's it's just a matter of you know how are you how are you getting up the the mountain? Are you you know running up and jumping and and missing and sliding back down, or are you just sort of taking it step by step and and both ways will get there eventually, although maybe one way gives you a bit more damage. Um, I think that when I think about how innovation should work anyway, I think that the big mistake that people tend to make is they just come to they they, they come up with things in their imagination and then they try to bring them to market. Um, and expect them to hit and are often disappointed. And I say that what you really need to do is look at what people are already doing and look at how to to make that better. Like when I was a kid, I learned that, you know, invention is coming up with things out of whole cloth, but innovation is improving things that already exist. As an engineer, I have understand, I've come to understand that the world is created out of workflows and that those workflows cost time and money. And if you can increase the you know the workflow efficiency so that it takes less time and less money first of all it's a great way of making money but second of all you end up having these really kind of gradual effects which build up over time i think that the american idea of doing things uh, you know explosively and then kind of picking up the pieces it works but it also leaves a lot of damage in its wake whereas taking a more uh, incremental approach Um, I think ultimately uh, gets you to the same place, but it it gets you there a lot calmer. But you have to be willing to take that approach, and you have to be willing to actually look at the problem that you're trying to solve and solve it from first principles instead of just doing what's always been done before, which I think is the mistake that Europeans tend to make.
1: I feel like the tech world is full of ageism today.
0: Yeah, I think ironically the more experience I get, the harder it gets for me to find work. Um, and I think that
1: that's, that amazes me. How is that possible? Like,
0: I think it manifests itself in a lot of different ways. And I mean, I think that there is a lot of ageism in the industry, but I don't think it is the way that people might imagine it to be because mm -hmm. I think that people imagine that they look at you and they say, oh no, you're too old, but that almost never happens. It's Mm -hmm. more like things that either intentionally or unintentionally tend to penalize experience. Like here's a classic example. If you have an engineer who has very little experience and you ask them if something's possible, they're very likely to say, oh yeah, absolutely, it'll be easy, because they don't know any better.
1: <laughs> right, but if right. you
0: ask the experienced engineer who's been doing it for 30 years, if it's possible, they're gonna say, well, I gotta tell you, it's gonna be really difficult, there's gonna be some regulatory right. issues, there's some liability things you have to deal with here, uh, there's a lot of gotchas, and at a certain point, somebody who really just wants to get the thing built is gonna say, this guy's harshing my mellow. I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't yeah. want to work with this yeah. person. I, 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 want, I want this person who's selling me a, a load of crap because that, that crap yeah. is appealing.
1: That's, that's kind of scary to me because it makes you think, do you keep your mouth shut? Do you just act like that other dumb person? Which means you're not being your authentic self and you're not bringing the authentic values to the job. Like, did you have to change your LinkedIn profile when you started relooking for work?
0: I really did. Uh, My first, you know, I would say a month of looking for work was an absolute disaster. I couldn't even get somebody to give me an interview. And I knew that I had more experience than anyone they were were talking to. And so I ended up having to sort of like uh, leave the world of engineering and turn to the world of like resume writing. And what ultimately became effective for me is I started lying on my resume about how much experience I had.
1: Oh, you had to dumb yourself down. I
0: had to dumb myself way down. I had, to, I had to. I went from having 26 plus years of experience to 16 years of experience, which is all I think most people could actually prove, which yeah, is especially dangerous in engineering because when we delude ourselves in engineering, really, really bad things can happen. Very expensive yeah. mistakes can yeah. be yeah. made.
1: Yes, yes. Hey, listen, since you live in the Netherlands, I'm going to take this conversation in a different direction. And Mark knows this, but um, what is your favorite thing to eat that's dutch because every person i talk to we always get on the subject of dutch food and since you are every every everybody everybody including the president of freedom internet so no one's exempt from this conversation about dutch food what is your favorite dutch food
0: oh man it, that's so difficult there are so many things to choose from
1: okay you can choose you can choose one that you absolutely love like you're going to eat all the time and maybe a couple that you just are your go-tos like
0: well, uh, let me put it this way. What happens is I, like when I first moved here, the fries, right? Like I hated mayonnaise <laughs> when I moved here. And now I eat mayonnaise yeah. all the time. Oh, right? okay.
1: Orlach. The, the peanut time. sauce and the mayonnaise are just like together because that means war, right?
0: Mar- uh, yeah. Orla. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So this is it's funny because like, <laughs> Dutch people don't even think about this. Because I asked somebody once, I said, is it called Petace's Orlach because the mayonnaise represents the Dutch and the peanut sauce represents Indonesia and like the onions on top are like the shrapnel? And they're like, oh my God, I never <laughs> thought about it no
1: that is so oh my god that's so true is this true mark
2: no not that i know
1: but is it but why what why do they call it war why is it because the peanut sauce and the mayonnaise and i always had them to leave off the onions so i had no shrapnel in my feet um but i love that analogy um, but now I do eat that all the time now, right? You eat the peanut sauce and the mayonnaise together on the
0: food. I mean, I did for years, but it's like now if, I, if I'm if i really trying to think about like what is my favorite Dutch food right now, it's probably stamppot, you know, which is basically just what? like mashed potatoes and gravy. But man, in okay. the wintertime when it's cold, like the weather yeah. today, man, I'm craving some stompel. Yeah. So.
1: But also going and to bit a the balls and just like, <laughs> uh, yeah, a bit of ball and I love those. I love those. Yeah. We ate a lot of those in my time there. Anything else, uh, Mike, that... Any other food?
0: Well, I, I mean, I, so on the food subject, I, I will just say there aren't that many. There aren't that many like traditional Dutch foods. I think we've kind of named them all, um, and I've had my love affair <laughs> with all of them at one time or another. Like bitter balls were like the first thing that yeah. I I so fell in good. love with before I moved here, right? Um, and
1: oolibollen, oolibollen, I love.
0: Well, Olibola we'll are very good, here. but I've become very picky about the Olibola. Yeah,
1: okay. Uh, so, like,
0: for me, <laughs> it's like they, they have to be fresh. And so, like, this is going to sound super weird, but if you're from here, you know. I, I For some reason, the Olibola stand in front of Townsend from Osdorp just has, like, the mm-hmm. best everything. Okay. I think it must be the turnover. I don't know what it is, but yeah. That's but, cool. That's cool. Yeah um uh
1: and also what about like under my favorite thing to do there was to go to like a panacolkin house you know or like a puffridge house where the, you have to sit up really straight because those little benches are so straight <laughs> like, oh my god these are you can't, like lean over and eat you're like because the benches are tiny i'm obsessed with those just obsessed and recently they've just come to the states like all of a sudden you see pufferages everywhere mm-hmm. and you're like how what no how is this happening? Scoot okay. was another thing. Yeah.
0: Yeah, this is the one thing that I love as much now as I did the day I moved here and that is the crunchy speculus pasta. Right? Mm-hmm. You can get the smooth stuff in the states but the crunchy stuff and, and you know, speculoos mm-hmm. is like that that kind of famous like cinnamon I think they called biscoff in the yeah. states, right? Yeah. And then and then you crunch that up like it's a peanut butter and yeah. then that called the speculus pasta. Uh pasta just meaning paste. And the, yeah. the crunchy version of that, man, if I'm not careful, I will just eat a jar of it. In fact, it's on sale at Albert Heijn. I think I might go get some right now.
1: Okay, you see, do you <laughs> see what I'm saying? Like, this is the only culture of people, and if you go back, you're not gonna probably listen to all these, but every single Dutch person on this podcast talks about food. And then when you start talking about it, uh, you get exactly what you, oh, you go, oh man, the speculus, the crunch, you get into it because it's so unique. You know, I just, when It's I getting travel, so much better. Ooh, okay. I love that. I love that. And when I used to come back before I lived over there, I used to go to Albert Heijn before I would fly back and I would pack my suitcase full of De spr- chocolate sprinkles like, oh, yeah. and, and pufferidge mix. And I bought a pufferidge pan, pan, a cake, a pan, pufferidge pan. I mean, you could, let's live like a murder weapon, that thing. You could literally kill somebody. It's, they're so heavy, like all cast iron. And I thought I was so cool. I literally thought I was the coolest person in America because I was. So, anybody that
2: doesn't know what pofrits is,
0: it's a mini pancakes.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's just, it doesn't even do it justice to call it a mini pancake. Does not even do it justice. Yeah. Um, yeah,
0: it's like every culture in the world has something called a pancake, but they can be very yeah. radically different.
1: Yeah, yeah, and the pentacle can also, I think, are different. They're just really big. They're filled it, it, with. I describe it as a crepe pizza. Oh, that is yeah. a great mm. way to describe that. <laughs> That's a great way to describe that. Okay, are there any topics, any other things that we would love to cover and share with the world? I chose Amsterdam. and I love that you did because it sounds like you love the country and you've like invested in what's happening to it, it politically, te- technically. Um, and I love that because I think that means you become part of the fabric of a country. And mm. um, I think that's really beautiful. And congratulations to you for making that happen. I think the country obviously will benefit from your passion, because you have a lot of it, and if you don't have it, have passion. You might as well just pack it up and head home.
0: That's true. Yeah, no, yeah. I know. I I love the city. <laughs> I love the country. And every time yeah. I leave, and I think, oh, maybe other places are good, but then when I come back and I and I look down at this country from the air, it is just the most beautiful, it is. well-organized country. Like yeah, the infrastructure, so it makes me so happy.
1: Yeah, and I think <laughs> that a lot of people don't have that, and I think that that. Is one of the beautiful things about the Netherlands. I'm also passionately in love with the country and the people, uh, having lived there a long time and knowing them. And I think they brought a lot to my life, and I'm grateful for every single person that has taken me in and taught me something and told me, you know, taught me how to ride a bike the right way. Thank you. Mike, so much for taking the time and coming to share, you know, what's happening with you and what you want to be doing. And we're going to put for everybody who's looking for an engineer and does not want a dumbed down person working for them. (laughs) Please check the notes out. You can look for what Mike is doing. You can hire Mike. And also, if you're a brand or an agency or just someone that wants a fantastic agency that's going to care about you and care about your brand and do things the right way, you got to go to Mark. You got to go for Brand... Powered uh, Media. Powered. (laughs) I was getting there. Brand Powered Media. I think you need to work on that name. Okay. Brand Powered Media. And um, I'll put all of this in the notes. Thank you guys so much for taking the time. I know it's late over there. so.
0: Oh, thanks so much. I had a really great time.
1: Yeah, me too. Well, that's all we have today, folks, on Tiny Little Victories. I hope you enjoyed that 23rd episode of season two with Mike Lee and Mark DeCock. I want to thank you all for joining us each and every week. And if you could take a little extra minute, go in and you could rate us on Spotify if you're on Spotify. You can also make a comment. I love comments. And you can follow us or share with other people. It'd be great. Super, super great. And on that note, I just want to leave you with. One thing. Um, I don't know if any of you are on Medium or Substack, but man, there's some fantastic writing going on out there. And as a writer, I have to like give props to all my fellow writers that are out there. And if you get a chance, please go check out Substack and a column called "Garbage Notes" by Franco Amati. He has a publication on Medium called "Scuzz Bucket." Fantastic literary atrocities, speculative fiction, gritty realism. So go check it out and expand your fictional horizons by checking out some of the great writers on Substack and Medium. I'm also on Substack and Medium, so you can check out my writing. And I would love to share with you, it Lets you get inside my mind a little bit, which can be a scary place, but I know you guys can handle it. Okay. So I will see you next Wednesday with Dr. Brittany Lamb on Tiny Little Victories.